Welcome to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. Hello and welcome back once again to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. I am Megan. And of course I am Lauren. Welcome. How are you guys doing? We took a break, Ski. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, actually, I think it was such a, like, uh, perfectly in keeping with the topic break. Like, I wasn't going to laugh at you, but it was really, I was like, well, this just makes sense with the timing. Yep. Yeah. I'm going to try to not make myself think I, like, manifested it. <laughs> Yeah, I had a I had a weird pain flare where all my joints were inflamed, so that was interesting. We needed to rule out some stuff, but long story short, I am a okay. It was just strange. Yes, that is very strange. Glad you're feeling better. Me too, and you know, glad I don't have Lyme disease. That's great. That's, that's always good. Yep. I mean, obviously. It's just anytime you find out you don't have a disease, that's just like, okay, cool. Cool, just the like, regular stuff. Awesome. Like just my regular thing. This is, I think, the uh, disadvantage of having a podcast hosted by two chronically <laughs> ill people. <laughs> it takes us a little longer. Every once in a while, because last time it was my pain that delayed us. This time it was yours. Because last you're time right. we, we recorded the episode. Um, Bef- like a while before it actually got out because oh, right yeah. after we recorded it I had a really bad pain flare and then wasn't able to edit it for a while Understood. and then we had to reschedule this recording and I'm just like well damn at least I'm glad we're you know releasing episodes that just kind of explain to our lovely audience why we're such a shit show sometimes like we really love you guys so much and we're so sorry but we have to put our health first (laughs) and our health is liquid garbage um no it's 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 good we're doing the best that we can um but yeah plain pain flares are weird i don't know if it's like this for you but like just literally all my joints hurt to the point where like holding my phone was like painful Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I, that's not always how mine are, but it can be sometimes. Uh, my pain flares tend to be like, you know, when you have had the flu and you're on like day three and your whole body just aches horrendously, that's usually right about, I'm like day three flu, yep. where I'm like, I can kind of like prop up with my phone, but like any moving, like my fine motor skills, I'm like I can hold but I can't, like, sit up for very long yeah. or anything, so, yeah. And I was getting, like, real clumsy, too, where I was oh. just, like, it, like, hurts to, like, hold things for extended periods of time, which is difficult when you have a baby, come to find. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. It's like Poor Benny. He's good. I mean, luckily, you know, Nick works at home, so he was able to, like, do a lot of, like, the heavy lifting stuff, and now Benny's crawling, so that helped a lot, but I was like, holy guacamole. You're just like, buddy, how about, how about we just, we cuddle? You want to cuddle for a while? They're, like, crawling away. It's like, come back here. Come back here. We're gonna cuddle and, uh, watch Miss Rachel, and it's gonna be great. It's gonna be so good. So, yeah, so we're, we're getting back into it. I mean, this is part two of that topic just because we had so much to talk about and we added some things too so we we added more things because honestly we could keep going for quite a while yeah that's the thing about this topic is it is broad and you know we could take it in several different directions we could um, make a whole podcast into this but i feel like that'd be really a bummer to our fans who like the murder <laughs> content like wow this took a took a turn um, sharp turn did we have any housekeeping stuff at the beginning? I feel like we're good um, on that. No. Um. Yeah, I think we are all good on housekeeping. I have. We haven't had a lot of uh, comments or reviews late. I mean, everything's yeah. just been kind of Chill. as is. Yeah, we appreciate all the new likes and follows um, on the Facebook. I know we don't post a lot there, but it's still nice, you know, to see people. Like, hey, yeah. I listen to your podcast. Like, cool. Appreciate it. It is. It's nice. Isn't it weird, though, when, like, somebody that you know in person just, like, randomly likes the podcast page and then you find out they've been listening this whole time but have never mentioned it to you before and you're like, yes. 
Oh, hey, coming out of the woodwork. What up, girl? Like, tell me, what do you think? <laughs> That's always exciting. Yes, it is. Aw, cool. All right. Um, well, I guess to transition out of that briefly, just because we're kind of already talking about it, um, I know Megan talked a lot about her, um, about fibromyalgia. Was that technically an autoimmune disorder? <laughs> the answer is question mark. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. So the disorder that I have, and I'm just going to talk about it briefly. There's not a whole lot of interesting stuff when it comes to like the intersect with mental health. Um, but I mentioned that I would talk about it just because I think it's good to raise awareness about these things. Um, but the disorder that I have is something called antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. And so what that is, is essentially, um, it's an autoimmune disorder-ish where the body is attacking itself and that it's attacking the protein in my blood. So what happens is I have way clottier blood than normal people and it's really easy for me to get blood clots. Extra clotty. Extra clotty, extra sticky. Um, Not a good thing. Yeah, that's like the non-clinical term is sticky blood. I got that sticky blood. Um, but yeah, so because of that, um, I have had, you know, multiple blood clots before, you know, in my legs, it never became like a pulmonary embolism or stroke or anything like that. Um, so we're able to catch it fairly early, but the frequency of like how much it was happening caused my doctor to do the blood test. And that's how we figured out it was antiphospholipid. Um, the thing about that, that's interesting, just kind of like a trigger warning is a lot of, it, it's very common in women, um, especially women of color. And um, a lot of women will figure out they have this disorder after having recurrent miscarriages or stillbirths. Um, and that's because of, you know, attacking the blood protein, um, as I mentioned before. So the good part about me when it comes to this disorder is that I figured out way before trying to have Benny. Um, so I was able to plan for the pregnancy and do what I needed to do so that he stayed healthy, I stayed healthy, didn't have to worry about clotting during the pregnancy, and could prepare for the birth in a safe way. Um, as you can imagine, just the nature of birth, like you bleed a lot. Um, so one of the ways that I manage my disorder is being on blood thinners. Um, so you have to kind of do like a special thing when it comes to blood thinners throughout the pregnancy and um, during childbirth and we were able to do that and we were able to managing or to manage the bleeding well enough um, and everything ended up being totally okay there um, but I feel like it's worth it to bring it up just because a lot of women don't understand why they're having miscarriages and stillbirths, um, a lot of unanswered questions, and that might be something to look into. And that's as easy as a blood test. Um, and it can help you figure out some things. Um, but I guess how it intersects with mental health is naturally um, when you get frequent blood clots, that definitely causes some anxiety. <laughs> that's not the greatest. So <laughs> you're feeling like random leg pains. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of get in your head a little bit. Yeah. Um, and the same thing with just, you know, being on warfarin or, you know, any sort of blood thinner, it becomes a little bit nerve wracking because you don't clot as easily then. So if you get like an into some sort of accident or cut yourself, it does take a little bit of time to stop bleeding, which can be anxiety provoking as well. Yeah, like it's definitely a uh, risk. It's risky in a lot of ways. Like, um, either way. Yeah, if you're getting treatment or not getting treatment. You know? Like, there gotta, gotta be, like, not die. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it made your pregnancy a bit more nerve-wracking than it may yes. have been otherwise, but... Definitely. It definitely was categorized as high-risk, um, so I had maternal fetal medicine doc, and he was incredible. And it was helpful, too, for my anxiety just to be under that level of care. Um, 
because I was able to see Benny and go to ultrasound appointments way more than what's typical. Yeah. So. Yeah, I got so many ultrasound pictures. I love ultrasound pictures. I, I do don't. Too. I'm just like I don't know why, but I think also you know we can uh, while we're talking about this, we can also clarify that is the reason that the podcast slowed down so much. And I know Lauren obviously mentioned the pregnancy when she was comfortable with it, but there had been. A lot of appointments for quite a while and trying yeah. to record the podcast with it was just between our work schedules and your doctor's appointments. It like, was really hard. Yeah. It was not possible. Especially for a towards long time. the end, yes. you know, because I had some like high blood pressure issues towards the end, um, mm-hmm. which is why I had Benny early. But um, yeah, when it came to that, I had to like get in wherever I fit in sort of a situation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was an interesting time. And also, yeah, I don't know if we said on the podcast that you had Benny early. But oh, yes. He was an Everyone. early baby. <laughs> he was an early baby. He was five weeks early. Um, so we had a little bit of time in the NICU. But, you know, he is A-OK. He is a Titan boy. You would never know that he was in the NICU now. Um, he's very, so, yeah. he's friendly and he's... He's a substantial child. I feel like that's the best way to put, like, because healthy weight babies, they're they're dense creatures there. He is. And he's, like, barrel-chested. I'm like, where did you come from? (laughs) He's like, I know it's too too early to call because he's still so young, but, like, he takes after Nick. Oh, a thousand percent. That's where the barrel-chested is coming from. Yeah. they They got a bulky build. So for those who don't know me in person, which is the majority of you, I'm not a a very tall person. I'm 5'3", so, like, to have, like, a big child like this is kind of, it's kind of funny. It is. It is funny, but, yeah, I mean, I I don't know if you ever listened to, like, the Lauren had a baby thing I posted literally just said you had a baby. It was, like, 30. Oh, it did. I'm, like, they're good, because I I wasn't sure, and also, I mean, clearly, like, like, there was so much happening that it was just, like, we wouldn't hear from you for a while, which was totally fine, but I was just, like, I don't really know how much I should say, so I kept it, like, Lauren had a baby. This is his name. They're doing great. Which, exactly. But yeah, yeah. I, mean, it was... I appreciated that because it's one of those things where, you know, a billion things can happen and I don't like putting things out until I know for sure things are okay. You know, like. Right. And also, I mean, when you're going through just the emotional impact of like a high risk pregnancy and your labor was uh, shockingly fast. That yes. kind of turned around pretty quickly on you. Plus, like, Nick, you, t- you don't really want to just share that with everyone while it's ongoing. You just need your right. own time and space to process it. So I was just like, one day we might talk about this with everyone. But, like, if we don't. And that was so funny, too, because people would ask me. And they're like, how's Lauren's baby? I'm like, I, I, I haven't heard anything. So clearly not that bad, I think, was like, right. the answer. I was just like... As far as I know, good. And they're like, you don't know all this? I'm like, no. It's fine. Why do I yeah. need to right now? It was a, oh, twas a whirlwind. Oh, my um, God. Sorry about the awkward gap, everyone, because I doubt I'm going to get that to be flawless. Zoom me, Zoom changed some things and kicked us out of a call. So, so now we're back in it, and we're good. Um, so, yeah. So that was a little bit about my autoimmune disorder. Yeah. Um, But I, you know, just to kind of transition out of that, um, I did want to share with you guys um, about when it comes to like physical and mental health, there is an autoimmune disorder that has a lot of linkage with mental health that I honestly did not realize was an autoimmune disorder Mm -hmm. um, prior to researching it. Did you know it was? I did know that psoriasis was an autoimmune disease, but that's only because I've known several people who had it. So it's just oh, like really? come okay. up before. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So psoriasis is an autoimmune disorder. Um, so a lot of people often will think that it's only a skin disease. Um, and I think a lot of people mistake psoriasis with just like common dandruff um but it is different and i'll kind of get into what about it is different um so it's actually a chronic autoimmune disease that affects the skin 
Um, so the issue specifically is from T cells. So these are the cells that are supposed to attack are supposed to attack invaders like bacteria and viruses um, to protect your bloodstream. But what ends up happening is the T cells attack healthy skin cells. So it also triggers excess production in new skin cells. So the supply of new skin may sound like a good thing, but with people with psoriasis, um, the new skin cells move to the top layer of skin way too fast and that creates the buildup that forms the plaques that we know of um, and these hyperactive cells can also lead to um, the lesions um, that can be painful for some people yeah that's kind of the science behind that um so i guess the most common type of psoriasis is something called plaque psoriasis um and by the way this article i found in self magazine um, the lady who wrote it, she had a really cool name. I want to say her name was Melissa Lavender. I was like, oh my gosh. Oh, that's um, pretty. But she I did, like that. Yeah. But she did a gorgeous job of putting together this um, article in a way of like, you know, citing appropriate sources, um, giving really good explanations of what psoriasis is, and also interviewed some people about their experience, which I feel like is really helpful for people to hear about like real life case studies in a way. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, shout out oh, to cool. Miss Lavender. Um, so anyway, so psoriasis um, that is the most com common kind is plaque psoriasis. Um, so it's characterized by dry, dry raised areas of the skin uh, known as plaques, which I talked about before. Um, and the plaques will depend on your skin color. Um, with darker skin, they tend to have brown or violet or sometimes gray scales, while plaques tend to appear red, pink, or silvery white on lighter folks. Um, so plaques can be on any part of the body, so it's not just the scalp. Um, so including under the nails, which sounds incredibly uncomfortable and painful, mm -hmm. um, inside the mouth, but are usually found on the scalp, elbows, knees, torso, and genital areas, um, which I also didn't know about psoriasis occurring in the genital areas, which I'm sure is incredibly uncomfortable yeah. and not even to get into having to like explain to a sexual partner, like this isn't an STD, this is a chronic illness. Well, like, and I'm ugh. sure with like the pain for some of that could also impact sexual function or yes. just arousal and all of that. So it can have a pretty significant impact on a lot of things, depending on where you have them and how e severe it is. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so the plaques can be small or large. Um, it can be in one area or spread out and it could also be itchy and sore. So you can kind of see like, especially like in the general areas, if, you know, it might have some symptoms that kind of look like STIs and it could be awkward to go to the doctor. Maybe, you know, you don't want to go and find out that you have an STI, but it's actually chronic illness. So it's important to kind of keep that in mind. It's important to go either way. Yes. If, you, if your genitals are itching uncontrollably, please see a doctor. Please go. Please go. <laughs> knowing is Just better than for not yourself. knowing. Just yeah. figure it out. Exactly. Um, so what's interesting about them too is that it won't be present all the time. Um, so there's actually, actually psoriasis flares, um, which wax and wane. Mm -hmm. So instead of a pain flare, psoriasis So flare. many lovely types of flares that you can have with these chronic conditions. Everything's flaring up. Yep. Love that for us. Not. <laughs> Hate um. that journey for us, quite <laughs> frankly. Uh, so anyway, so when it comes to mental health, a lot of research has shown that psoriasis can contribute or worsen various mental health conditions, um, including but not limited to, of course, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, eating disorders, etc. Um, a lot of doctors will say that it's a chicken and egg type situation um, when it comes to mental health. Um, so with anxiety or depression, it may kickstart the onset of psoriasis or trigger or exacerbate flare-ups. 
So beyond that, um, there are studies that show major stressful life events such as death in the family can result in new onset of psoriasis. Stress just, it is one of those interesting things that like you usually have to have the genetic predisposition, but like for so many things that creep up, it's just like, okay, so you had a stressful life event things got really bad and you're like oh good on top of that my body's just like eh we're just we're done we're just gonna have this problem we're gonna fall apart now we're just we're having a moment (laughs) over here and you're like i was just finally coping with my grief no i'm sick okay cool i guess like they just they're so connected i'm like really just kicks you when you're down these health conditions i mean truly it's truly not fair i'm so sorry everyone in the spoonie community um but yeah, so there is a couple of people um, that Miss Lavender interviewed in this, which I appreciated. Um, one of them was Melissa P., who's in her 30s, um, and she thought the white flakes that kept appearing in her hair were actually just really bad dandruff, which is a common misconception. Um, the doctors told her um, that she had psoriasis, essentially, um, and then Melissa started getting corticoid steroid injections to help manage the psoriasis um, but the condition escalated during an especially hard period of her life that included domestic violence um, this is a quote from her as life became more complicated and more real-world stuff was happening the psoriasis became worse um, she explained that due to the violence she was experiencing she didn't feel safe enough to travel to get the injections um, so her psoriasis plaques became dry raised um, lesions covered with scales they became bigger and more noticeable um, and she couldn't cover them anymore around her eyebrows and her forehead and Melissa quote said um, that the psoriasis had never been worse um, than during that period um, Melissa was then diagnosed with general anxiety disorder and depression as a teenager uh, but it was later found out that she had both post-traumatic stress disorder and complex PTSD Um, which is associated with prolonged, repeated, or multiple incidences of trauma, if you're not familiar with CPTSD. Right, and we'll just kind of throw out, like, CPTSD is not, like, a formal DSM diagnosis. It's a widely accepted, like, specific type of PTSD that has a slightly different symptom presentation Mm -hmm. on the basis of long-term repetitive trauma. Exactly. Thank you, Miss Megan. You are welcome. (laughs) So, in addition to bettering her mental health, um, she develops mindfulness techniques, um, and she also was involved in inpatient trauma treatment. Um, So, both of those helped her a great deal, Um, and she was quoted saying, for me, stress makes the plaques worse. When I can see, I'm getting really stressed and worked up. I do mindfulness exercises so I can talk myself out of it. Sometimes I can even feel psoriasis coming on. I'll scratch my forehead or my eyebrows and I'll start to see a plaque. I really have to be mindful and conscious of how I respond to this situation if I don't want an outbreak. So when you understand the connection between psoriasis and mental health, you'll see why. Um, so, you know, I thought that was really helpful for her to go in and explain that. And, you know, I didn't even think about, um, that piece of not getting the treatment that you need, um, due to life events, Mm -hmm. domestic violence, stress, um, and just making that whole situation even worse. Yeah. And I can imagine also with the depression, that would be pretty significant. A lot of people with depression have trouble with motivation and just getting up and doing things and, you know, a lot of times those injection appointments for people with autoimmune disease, a lot of times they're pretty regular appointments. And if you're yeah. not fortunate enough to live somewhere where you're close to doctors that are in your network, a lot of people have to travel quite a bit to get their medication. So it can be right. quite... Right, or take PTO to do that sometimes. Like, Yeah, it's a, it's a big mess. And anything that makes it like... Anything mental health-wise will make it kind of harder to overcome all of those barriers to get the treatment. Exactly. Yeah, so that was something I didn't even think of until she mentioned it. Um, So, like many folks with psoriasis, um, there was another gal that was mentioned named Jennifer, who also was in her 30s. Um, 
and she felt that the condition could impact a person's social life and mental health, which totally makes sense. Um, she was diagnosed with psoriasis when she was 15 with psoriatic. Thank that's you. That's the psoriasis arthritis combo. Got it. Psoriatic arthritis. Got it. Okay. Um, okay. So she was diagnosed with that at 25 and then followed by depression a year later and then anxiety. So psoriasis can cause an ac- exacerbation of my mental health conditions, she explained. I go through days sometimes where I cancel all plans. I can be looking forward to going out, start to get ready, and boom, anxiety hits. I feel hideous and won't leave the house. Um, so she kind of went on to explain just the social impact of it, where, you know, people can be really cruel and judgy, and, you know, that can make you want to stay inside and not be social, which will totally exacerbate, you know, mental health symptoms and make them even worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so according to the research, the good thing or the upside that we know now is that the relationship between psoriasis and mental health is that if you can control or limit one, you will be able to impact the latter. Um, So they really do affect each other. um, And it's important to know that. So that way, you know, if you are um, struggling with psoriasis, it may be helpful to start seeing a therapist and start working through it. Or, you know, if you're starting to get psoriasis flares, you know, maybe consider, am I going through a really stressful life event? Is there a way that I can manage this better? Right. I think, you know, similarly, a lot of what the research with fibromyalgia does indicate, it's not that treating your mental health will fix your physical health, but they are so interrelated that whenever possible, treating both will help, right? Obviously, in America, the insurance system is a mess, and we won't get into all that, so we know not everyone is able to, unfortunately, but if you can, treating both really does help, and this is why I am a huge proponent of, um, you know, as many people as possible, just getting some therapy, right? Even if you yep. don't, not in a crisis, nothing big is going on, like, just, it, it, stress does impact your health, mental health does impact your health, physical health involves your mental health, like, it's all so connected that anything you can do to make yourself, like, feel better overall will benefit you in so many ways, like, physical, emotional, mental, it's, uh, it's, it's beneficial for a lot of reasons. So, yeah, that is psoriasis. Um, now I'm just want to talk about something really interesting that I did not know until like my first day working on a crisis line. Uh, it was like part of our training where they're like casually like, okay, if you're talking to an elderly person who is suddenly psychotic, just tell their family to take them to the emergency room because they had a UTI. And I had never heard of this before, but this is a real thing. So for those of you who don't know, a UTI or a urinary tract infection is an infection of your urinary tract, most commonly your bladder. Uh, Key symptoms of UTIs are the need to urinate frequently and or urgently, a burning sensation while you're urinating, and urine with an unusual color or odor. Sometimes you may have blood in the urine. Um, however, these symptoms are often missing in older adults, who are, or they're not able to articulate them. So in the senior population with the UTI, they may suffer from unexplained incontinence, which is unable being unable to hold your bladder and just peeing whenever you have to um fatigue or sudden changes in their behavior and mental status so this is the interesting thing right for many of us if we get a uti or we just get some antibiotics and like you're good to go pretty quickly um but in elderly populations they can really cause some significant issues so according to uh, dr smith from this article Older people can get markedly confused, agitated, or sleepy. Sometimes they can hallucinate or see things that aren't there, like bugs crawling on the ceiling. They can also experience delusions, false beliefs, and become paranoid. So, according to Dr. Smith, a UTI is the most common cause of sudden increase of confusion in dementia patients. So, if a patient has dementia and is suddenly getting more confused, that's a good indication they may have a UTI. 
And the medical community isn't actually sure why this happens in older people. In dementia patients, they think that the lower baseline for clear thinking and effective communication is likely a contributing factor. So if somebody already has dementia, they would be less likely to recognize the symptoms of a UTI and less likely to tell their loved ones or care staff that this is happening. So it's possible that it gets a lot worse than most people would get, would like let it get, right? Because many people would be able to notice, hey, I've peed yeah. six times like in the middle of the night. That's a problem. Like I'll see a doctor. They may not be able well, to. Well, also like if you're experiencing psychotic symptoms, I feel like as a person, I would be way more concerned about that. <laughs> like, oh, I'm peeing a lot right now, right, but like, also who, I'm seeing bugs crawling on the ceiling. Who's paying attention to the peeing part when the bugs are on the ceiling? Like, I get that. That's it's the like question. once you're already there. Um, so, yeah, like they can understand it a bit more in patients with dementia. However, this is true of seniors with and without dementia. Um, mm -hmm. That they are that this might happen. So the main effect on a uh, of a UTI on a senior's mental health is delirium. The U.S. Library of Medicine defines delirium as a mental state in which a person is confused, disoriented, and unable to think or remember clearly. The following symptoms of delirium are commonly seen in older adults with UTIs. However, they may not all be present and they may fluctuate over time. So any sudden change in mental status, confusion, memory loss, trouble concentrating, lethargy, hallucinations, delusions, restlessness or agitation, violent behavior or yelling, and changing levels of consciousness. And they add difficulty waking a senior is considered a medical emergency changing level of consciousness so mm -hmm. i also think that's just good information to get out there especially since many of us may have a senior that is a loved one that we care about and this is just a good thing for people to look out for this i found out working in the hospital on the crisis line that actually um whenever they had an elderly person present in the emergency room. This was like always the first thing they checked for anything. And I cannot tell you how many relieved families I've seen when they find out that what's happening to grandma is just a UTI and like some meds in her and like yeah. she'll be okay. Because it is scary when you see this happen and you jump to, you know, is is this Alzheimer's, is this dementia, is this going to be a huge problem? Is my lovely Nana developing schizophrenia for the first time right. in her 90s? The answer is no, it's most likely a UTI. Um, so this and is I feel it's so helpful to like have that kind of be more well known because I'm sure that is like so scary where you right. would think like oh my gosh like this is so serious when actually they just need some meds and they'll be fine right and like it is serious and you want to get it treated of very course. quickly um and you never want to like assume it's just a UTI and like be overly casual about it but a of lot course. of times it is fixable and they go right back to normal I actually I think one time had a uh elderly woman who called the crisis line that called back later to thank me for getting her to the hot it was just a uti she called back later oh, and was like God. that was so scary like but thanks like because i you know it is like people call because they're like i'm terrified right now and it's like hopefully yeah. this is just a uti we're just gonna get you to the hospital we're gonna get you checked out and hopefully you'll be a-okay in like a day or two but sudden hallucinations terrifying Yep. For the person. Oh, the crisis lines. <laughs> oh, crisis lines. <laughs> I don't even know if I can say that much, so I may edit that further. But, you know, so many stories that I can't tell any of you. So sorry, friends. There's sorry. It's like the thing with being friends with therapists. Is they're like, what's the weirdest thing that's ever happened? I'm like, I can't tell you shit. I can't tell you. Yeah. but <laughs> That will be taken to my grave. But wouldn't you like to know? I also just thought this was interesting and I wanted to throw this out there. This is a non-complete list of uh, physical health disorders and mental health conditions that can also cause psychosis. 
Mm. I just thought this would be fun to throw out there because it there's a lot more that I didn't know about. But apparently, yeah, lots of physical health things can cause psychosis. So, of course, when people do experience psychosis, it is scary. It is really intense. And we tend to jump to the worst thing of like, oh, this is going to be a permanent mental health thing, a long-term struggle to get managed correctly. But sometimes it is just a health problem. So some other, not that health problems aren't always bad, but some other conditions that can cause psychosis. I did not know that HIV and AIDS could cause psychosis. I didn't either, actually. Yeah. Uh, Both malaria and medication to treat malaria can both (laughs) cause psychosis. Um, T. Okay. Syphilis. That one I knew. I knew that one. Syphilis yeah. uh, at the quite a while in can definitely cause psychosis, Alzheimer's, uh, Lewy body disease, Parkinson disease, Lyme disease. Another reason. <laughs> Super happy you do not have Lyme disease can cause psychosis. Uh, strokes. <laughs> strokes can cause psychosis. Uh, multiple sclerosis, that is another one, MS, can cause psychosis, lupus, brain tumors, hormone disorders, head injuries, and some types of nutritional deficiencies are also known to lead to psychosis. So, Interesting. Yeah, it is really interesting. And of course, a lot of these conditions are pretty serious health conditions that are difficult to manage. I think it's just interesting to see like how many different things can cause them it's always complicated this is a big reason why if you are a clinician that is seeing someone that does have psychosis that's like early onset they pretty much you always get sent to a medical facility to rule out Mm -hmm. a bunch of other things first uh we don't want to assume that you have a mental health condition when you have a brain tumor that is causing your symptoms they need to be treated differently and mental health is important in that but in a different way so we want to roll right. all of that out, but that's that's a non-complete list, but there are, yeah, lots and lots of things that cause psychosis. Yeah, no, that's that's super helpful to share, and yeah, I, I think that's just good standard practice is, okay, let's rule out anything physical first. <laughs> like constantly sending people to doctors. Like, please just go to the doctor first. <laughs> please double check. Because we have yep. to, right? You want, technically speaking, in order to... Um, you know, diagnose someone with a mental illness, you have to rule out other illnesses, both mental and physical, which is why Mm -hmm. a lot of times your therapist will ask you questions about your medical history. Sometimes it's pretty obvious that it is a mental health thing, especially like a phobia. If you're like, I'm scared every time I go on an airplane. I don't know of any physical health conditions that cause fear of airplanes, but right sometimes it's obvious unless you have you get like vertigo, you know, like there's so many like different. I don't know to work together yeah so collaboration baby yeah all right so this next one um was something that was requested i'm pretty sure it was um i can't remember from who but we're talking about conversion disorder um so the other name for this disorder is functional neurological symptom disorder or functional neurological disorder it's characterized by neurologic symptoms either motor or sensory, that is incompatible with known neurologic disease. So some common symptoms might include weakness and or paralysis, non-epileptic seizures, movement disorders, speech, visual impairment, swallowing difficulty, sensory disturbances, or cognitive symptoms. Um, And I want to say that we covered some of this in a previous episode, um i believe we've talked a bit maybe it was mass hysteria we did talk about the witch trials in mass hysteria okay so yeah so just just to plug that too in case you're really really curious about this specific disorder that's definitely Um, we go into it more there yes i'm just gonna kind of touch on it if you want to learn more about it that's a really good episode to listen to um so the incident of conversion disorder is estimated between 4 to 12 per 100,000 individuals annually. Um, This is in the United States. Sorry, my son is yelling. (laughs) He just would like to, he wants to be on the podcast. He's decided he's our third host, just yelling things in the background. It's like, I have some thoughts about conversion disorder. Thank you, Benny. Let me in. 
uh, <laughs> about 37% of individuals with conversion disorder have had physical injury preceding the symptom onset. Um, so the criteria is one or more symptoms of altered voluntary motor or sensory function. Clinical findings provide evidence of incompatibility between the symptom and recognized neurological or medical conditions. So the symptom or deficit is not better explained by another medical or mental disorder, of okay. course, and the symptom or deficit causes clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. That's what causes people to come in to see a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, so some symptom specifiers uh, that might be important to look at are weakness or paralysis, um, abnormal movement, um, like a tremor, gait disorder, dystonic movement, swallowing symptoms, issues with speech, so aphasia, dysphonia, slurred speech, seizure attacks or seizures, uh, and that should say amnesia, but it says anesthesia, <laughs> amnesia, <laughs> or sensory loss, um, special sensory symptoms such as visual, olfactory, or hearing disturbances. Um, and for most people that do experience this, it'll actually um, be mixed symptoms. Um, so you also have to specify if it's an acute episode, meaning um, it was present for less than six months, or persistent, so symptoms occurring for six months or more. You also need to specify uh, with psychological stressor, so if there's like an impactful life event that happened, or without a psychological stressor. Mm-hmm. Conversion disorder involves either neurologically incompatible sensory or motor symptoms, but it does note that pain is not a part of the diagnostic criteria. Um, the diagnosis of this disorder is made through identification of positive symptoms, and positive doesn't mean positive that we think of it means that it's there it means that Um, it's something that is not typical that you do have yeah and negative symptoms would be something that's typical that you do not have correct amundo um so in conversion disorder when an individual is distracted there is usually a reduction or even a disappearance of the movement disorder which is kind Mm -hmm. of interesting Um, So what causes conversion disorder? So the direct cause is unknown. Um, It is triggered by a neurological disorder commonly. It could be a reaction to stress related to physical or psychological trauma. Trauma does a lot of crazy things to people. That it does. Um, And how the brain functions rather than damage to the structure um, is an important key component of conversion disorder. So most popular conversion disorder um, case was, of course, the Salem Witch Trials. Yep. So uh, there's obviously popular theories related to it, um, and I'll get into those a little bit. Um, But the fatal frenzy in 1692 began after a nine-year-old and 11-year-old niece of Salem's Puritan minister, Samuel Parrish, started behaving strangely and erratically. So the fit soon spread among the other girls in the village. When the doctors were unable to provide a medical diagnosis, it was decided the girls must have been possessed or tormented by witches. The clear answer. As historically, whenever a woman does something weird, they're a witch. Only Mm -hmm. plausible explanation. Only plausible. Um... It was quoted, people are in such mental anguish for a variety of reasons that literally their minds convert anxieties to physical symptoms. Um, so that was actually a quote from a Dr. Baker, actually, um, mm. from Boston.com, um, explaining conversion disorder, which is one of the most popular theories of what was actually going on during the Salem Witch Trials. So Dr. Robert Bartholomew Bartholomew? <laughs> I can't like pronounce things whenever I'm recording. I get nervous. I feel like it's like um, as soon as we're trying to record, we just sound dumber than we do in real life. Like I swear to God, I have multiple degrees. <laughs> I've seen the. De- I've wa- I can verify that Lauren graduated. <laughs> seen diplomas. They are real. Uh, they are real. Anyway, Dr. 
Bartholomew, a medical sociologist in New Zealand, collected more than 3,000 cases of conversion disorder dating back to 19 or 1566. Um, <laughs> Just and laughing, like, dating all the way back to 1956. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, it's not that long ago. <laughs> this feels very recent. Yes. Um, so this doctor says that Salem witch trials were undoubtedly a case of psychogenetic condition in which psychological conflict and distress are converted into aches and pains that have no physical origin. While the mechanism is poorly understood, there is no question that it happens. Um, this was most likely an example of motor-based hysteria, and that is one of the two main forms of conversion disorder. Um, it was also quoted, it is very rare in the Western world and arises from long-term stress, which results in disruptions to the nerves and neurons that send messages to the muscles and the brain. Your body goes haywire, twitching, shaking, facial tics, garbled speech, trance states. Um, Bartholomew also said that outbreaks appear slowly over weeks or months and take as much time to subside, but only after the stressful agent is no longer believed to be a threat. So the afflictions in Salem apparently ended in October 1692, around the same time the special court created um, to try witchcraft cases was dissolved, mm. which is interesting. As soon as we stopped trying people for witchcraft, they suddenly aren't so stressed out. Who would have thunk it? Amazing. <laughs> um so some examples of what could bring on conversion disorder include repressive family life or post-traumatic stress disorder, which are both very probable during that time period. Mm -hmm. He noted that several of the afflicted girls were refugees who had lost their homes and families to members in King William's War. Of the case studies by Bartholomew, he said 99% involved a majority of females. Um, the interesting thing is today, mass conversion tends to be most common in teenagers. And overwhelmingly, in overwhelmingly teenage girls, Baker said, and it tends to start out of, out at the top of social order, meeting, you know, if somebody is popular, they have more influence. Hmm. Um, the most infamous modern case of suspected conversion disorder occurred in 2012 in the upstate New York town of Leroy when a group of high school girls suffered from uncontrollable spasms and twitching. Um, the fits began with a group of cheerleaders before spreading to a wider amount of the Leroy high school hierarchy. Um, do you remember ever seeing videos of this? I have not seen videos of this. I want to say it was on, like, Good Morning America okay. or something. Um, so their symptoms range from subtle twitches to violent jerking of body parts and verbal outbursts. One girl woke up from a nap to find her chin was just, or was jutting forward uncontrollably, uncontrollably and her face was contracting into spasms. She was still twitching several weeks later when her friend awoke from a nap, stuttering, and then started twitching, her arms flailing and jerking. Though beginning with one group of friends, the numbers of afflicted rapidly grew outward. Soon there were 12, next 16, and then 18 suffering, and a community of just 600 people. Even one teenage boy and a 36-year-old woman would show symptoms of the distress. Um, so some other reports of cases in the United States dating back to the 1950s also disproportionately affected high school cheerleaders. <laughs> um, so according to the Times, many of the afflicted girls in Leroy had difficult or stressful home lives. So that's kind of interesting. Um, from absent or estranged parents to teenage pregnancy to poverty. Hmm. Um, so... One thing, if you don't mind me interjecting on something not that's happening uh, now, I was just pulling it up, to the research. So there's not a whole lot of data, but there is some research being done on this um, at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago hey, hey. Um, by Caroline Oliveira, a movement disorder fellow, um, that basically doctors are noting that it's not Tourette's, but a functional movement disorder but something mm -hmm. that they are noticing right now is um, 
with significant during the pandemic, the worst parts, uh, amongst teens that were already diagnosed with anxiety and depression, there's actually been a significant uptick in tics. Interesting. And tick behavior. Um, what you're saying is functional neurological condition, but they are noticing a pretty significant um, correlation to TikTok. And, oh, um, that's interesting. That is, yeah, where they're saying that um, the Caroline Oliveira was told the journal that she noticed many patients were blurting out the word beans with a British accent, even patients who didn't speak English. Um, and she learns that there's a British TikToker who has a tick where she says beans. Um, so it is it is an interesting thing and possibly can be a bit of a conversion disorder mm-hmm. in a different way of people who are maybe predisposed to this right. maybe so they are kind of theorizing because a lot of places are saying that with teenagers they're seeing like a 10 percent increase which is a pretty statistically significant increase in ticks so some people researchers are theorizing that there may be a more global conversion disorder doing with the increase in ticks um, but there, there's no, we can't say that for certain. It's a theory at this point in time, because with the internet, I think it's entirely possible for like conversion disorders and stuff like that to be spread in such a different way where you can no longer yeah. tell. Um, and also it is entirely possible, you know, for some people, if you are the type of person, if people who do have tics naturally, uh, have an increase in ticks when they're around other people who tick. So there can be an increased tick from watching people who have ticks. Where it I wonder if that's just like, like mirror neurons. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I don't know. It's- like if you see somebody, um, do something and you actually want. Or you naturally want to like copy that so if you see somebody like take like a drink of water and mm-hmm. it makes you want to take a drink of water um it's like that empathy part of the brain kind of yeah and i think it's interesting because like it's like even it seems to be like it's an ongoing thing and it could just yeah. be like people who have the genetic like predisposition may be more likely to get it but it can be conversion it's an interesting area of research um but since conversion disorders all are often like physically with like ticks and movements and stuff there can be an interesting overlap interessante yeah. but yeah there are so many theories about the salem witch trials um like i said listen to our other episode but that's just one of them that it could have been conversion disorder <laughs> Could have also been ergot poisoning. That is another. That's right. That is another competing theory, um, which is possible. And the answer you know? could very well be both. Um, there's both. No, unfortunately, <laughs> no reason it can't be both. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. Um, yep. So now I briefly just I know I mentioned this. I kind of wanted to end on this for a couple reasons um because this is like a hot new thing so i wanted to talk about long-haul covid and mental health um so i found few different things that i would like to discuss with you guys today and really point out that this is new research and when you have new research on a new phenomena in the world which covid is relatively new in the scheme of Mm -hmm. research uh we get conflicting results because we're trying to figure it out so First of all, I just want to give you a little definition of what long-haul COVID actually is. So COVID-19, as I'm sure we are all aware of at this point in time, is it originally was treated as an acute respiratory illness, a virus with symptoms that can linger in patients, right? So Mm -hmm. you guys remember 2020, we were all there when it's like- (laughs) You guys recall. You guys (laughs) recall there was coughing masks were a thing we all know right intense time there's no toilet paper or bread bread uh right now there's it's difficult to get pasta and tampons i read pasta and tampons yep yeah and formula still yes anyway go ahead <laughs> we have strong feelings about all of this um <laughs> so right an acute respiratory illness but what they're finding is that Many patients are still encountering challenges over a year after their original COVID symptoms emerge. Long COVID and post-COVID conditions refer to health problems that patients experience more than four weeks after the initial infection. And they're finding that the stress 
can take a real toll on your mental health. So some of the physical symptoms for long-haul COVID patients include difficulty breathing, heart palpitations, shortness of breath, and fever. Uh, some experience multiple organ effects, which can impact the heart, lungs, kidneys, skin, and brain. Autoimmune conditions and new allergies can emerge. Um, and some patients experience strokes, seizures, and changes in motor function and perception. Patients often encounter multiple symptoms, and it can be difficult to adjust or fully recover. Because data is still emerging about long-haul experiences, patients have little understanding of their long-term prognosis. So... That in of itself, that was just from an article from Very Well Mind, How Long Haul COVID Takes a Toll on Your Mental Health. Just some basic info. Now we're going to get into some studies. So, mm-hmm. okay. Um, all right. So when we're looking at this, um, this is a systematic review, Long-Term Effects of COVID-19 on Mental Health, a systematic review from Nicole Walbridge- Bromstrova, Thomas Solomon, Philip Broad, uh, Jessica Strawbridge, and Ben Cartera are the writers of this. So, basically, if we're looking between April and June of 2019, nearly 11% of Americans experienced anxiety and or depression, according to the National Center for Health Statistics National Health Interview Survey. During the same time frame from 2020, so between April and June of 2020, 35.6% of Americans reported symptoms of anxiety or depression. So 11% to 35.6% is an absolutely massive increase in this. So we know for a fact that there were way more people with anxiety and depression during 2020. This study is looking at specifically long-term effects of COVID-19, so having long-term COVID-19 symptoms and mental health, not just what COVID as a concept did to our mental health. Um, So the systematic review was undertaken to investigate the effect of COVID-19 infection on long-term mental health outcome. They looked through three databases, PubMed, MedOnline, and the Cochrane Library, between the 1st of October 2019 and the 29th of August in 2021, with additional hand-searching to identify all published studies reporting symptoms of generalized anxiety, depression, PTSD, or sleep disturbance in participants at least one month after COVID-19 infection. Okay. So, they basically assessed the prevalence and symptom scores of each, um, and they found 885 studies were found. There only 33 were included in the review, so a lot of them got <laughs> ruled out. Um, <laughs> with a t- Outliers. Yeah, with a total review of 6,473 participants. The study's risk of bias were participated for fair equity. Medium age of the participants was 57.8, with a 63% male. Participants typically experience no or mild symptoms of long-term anxiety and depression. Prevalence varied depending on the measurement tool. Sleep disturbances, primarily insomnia, were most commonly reported as mild. PTSD prevalence was similar to anxiety and depression. The overall effect of the pandemic has been linked with worsening psychiatric symptoms. However, the long-term effect from direct COVID infection has been associated with no or mild symptoms, according to this review. So I do think it's important to point out this is a thing. Um, if you read the full thing, you'll find out, um, you know, there were 885 studies. Only 33 were included in this review. They had problems with most of those studies or they weren't relevant. So this is another thing. So that study found with... Um, a total of 6,743 participants, they found that there really wasn't a connection. There was another study, though, that was done. And that 6,000 people under 7,000 is overall a pretty small research sample. Um, and that's yeah. a meta-analysis. So that means they're just reading through a bunch of other studies and determining. Those can be beneficial, but also tricky, because keep in mind, each of those participants was in a different study with a different measurement, yeah. looking at different things. Um, So the University of Iceland at Reykjavik uh, researchers led their study on uh, severe COVID-19 tied with long-term depression and anxiety. So they Mm -hmm. led a study 
uh, which analyzed symptoms of depression, anxiety, COVID-related stress, and poor sleep quality among 247,249 adults. So, way more. This is a huge, huge, huge study done um, as far as studies go. This one was... um, This was... They sent... um, Basically surveys to people in Denmark, Estonia, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, and the United Kingdom. And these participants were followed for 16 months. um, And on average, yeah, so it was amongst people who were 4% had been diagnosed as having COVID-19 from March 27th of 2020 to August 13th. Um, So what they found in this massive study is that most severely ill COVID-19 patients in the study recuperated at home. Some had time in a hospital. Relative to the uninfected participants, COVID-19 survivors had a higher prevalence of symptoms of depression and poor sleep quality, but not anxiety or COVID-related distress. The prevalence of depression and COVID-related distress lessened over time, but COVID-19 survivors who weren't bedridden during their illness were at a consistently lower risk of depression and anxiety than their uninfected peers. COVID-19 survivors bedridden for more than seven days, however, which was 22.3% of the infected patients, were at a persistently higher risk for depression and anxiety than the uninfected participants through the study period. So there can make sense. Yeah. So they found that severe acute COVID-19 illness indicated by extended time bedridden is associated with long-term mental morbidity among recovering individuals in the general population. Quote, these findings call for increased vigilance of adverse mental health development amongst patients with severe acute disease phase of COVID-19. They also said many pandemic related factors could have contributed to worsened mental health. Examples include having a fear of infected others, media coverage of the long-term effects of the infection, severe illness, and related inflammatory process, and personal vulnerability. In a press mm-hmm. release, uh, the writer, lead author, who I'm sure is an amazing human being, and I cannot pronounce Icelandic names whatsoever. Oh, so those are extremely difficult. Mad respect, uh, yeah, to this person. They're great. We respect you. We honor you. We cannot pronounce your last name. We cannot pronounce your first or last name, uh, but we will include it in the notes. Uh, said that the long-term physical effects of long COVID may mean limited social contact and may cause a sense of unhappiness. Quote, equally, inflammatory responses amongst patients with a severe diagnosis may contribute to more persistent mental health symptoms. In contrast, the fact that individuals with a mild COVID-19 infection can return to normal lives sooner and only experience a benign infection likely contributes to the lower risk of negative mental health effects we observed. So, um, research said that continued clinical vigilance with survivors of severe COVID-19 and follow-up beyond the first year of symptoms are warranted. Uh, the senior author, I can pronounce, looks like middle name Anna. Got that. That one I can do. Uh, Nailed it. Quote, our research is amongst the first to explore mental health symptoms after a serious COVID-19 illness in the general population up to 16 months after diagnosis. It suggests that mental health effects aren't equal for all COVID-19 patients and that time spent bedridden is a key factor in determining the severity of the impact on mental health. I just found that interesting because there's one study that's like long-term symptoms don't impact mental health and one study that's saying severe illness this does so mm-hmm. again COVID is a relatively new thing and we're still looking at all of the factors we're still early on in COVID research but I'm ex- I'm excited to see where this research goes of how this is going to impact people long term because I also totally. know you know just my own experience of being chronically ill it does stress you out and I'm sure if you're suddenly chronically ill for the first time after having COVID you're also going to have that stress and cope with it. So right. I just thought it was- and I, I think also that piece about like, I think it was like increased depression, anxiety symptoms of people who were bedridden for like seven. It was days? seven or more days. Yeah. Seven or more days. That makes sense that it would affect your mental health that way, because I'm sure at a certain point, just like 
your window of tolerance like for stress and like accepting like oh I'm really really sick I've been in bed for seven plus days like that can cause some long-term anxiety and feelings about yeah not wanting to get sick again not wanting to have to experience that again yeah and I like that they touched on the fact that it could be some social factors could also have to be with COVID inflaming your body and that effect and like how it can impact organs in its severe state um so yeah i think it's an interesting line of research and i think you know a lot of times stuff we talk about on the podcast is not this current of research and this is fresh and the thing is you know sometimes real-time research and when you look at real-time research it's messy you have studies saying completely Mm -hmm. different things because it's different sample sizes different countries different results and It's kind of too early to tell, but I just wanted to touch on it because I know it's something I'm, as a clinician, starting to hear about and starting to work with. And so, you know, you don't know how prevalent it is, but certainly some people with long, hard COVID are struggling on top of all of the other people who are just struggling because of COVID as a concept, not because of their experience with the illness. So interesting all around. Right. I agree. Good stuff, Megan. Good find. Oh, thank you. So, Lauren, right. do you have good shit for us this episode? I do. This week, I am getting my house painted. Mm-hmm. I'm very excited. I'm taking a leap. We are painting our living room a dark green. I love it. I think it's going to look really I good. I my I'm going for like a boho mm-hmm. vibe, adding more plants. Like I think it'll look cool. I love it. So, as an adult, that's like a very adult thing to be excited about. But I can't wait. I love it. I'm excited to see pictures. Please send yes. them to me immediately. I will. Thank you. What's your good shit? So my good shit, um, as you guys know, I recently moved from my terrible apartment to an actually nice apartment. And um, we have a balcony now, which so for five years, we did not have an outdoor space. And I really love gardening. I absolutely love it. It was something I've done for most of my life. And we were able to start a small garden. And we have... (gasps) What have you grown? uh, Or starting to grow? grow. We have a jalapeno plant. We have three tomato plants, mainly because we had two and it looked like they were going to die. And then they just sprung back up out of nowhere. Uh, Amazing. We have sugar snap peas growing on on our little trellis thing right now. They're doing good. We have a gooseberry bush. Ooh. And and we have a... um, herb garden that has dill basil and cilantro so we have the cilantro tomatoes and uh jalapenos so we're planning on making a bomb pico at some point in time (gasps) Uh, deliver it to my mouth (laughs) we will invite you over um so yeah it's just fun i find it very therapeutic it was something that like i didn't realize how important it was to me until i could do it again but it's like we thought the one tomato was gonna die and then i looked the other day and we have the teeniest tiniest tomato growing there's only one and i'm like i don't care if we only get a single tomato i will be so happy our jalapeno plant has two jalapenos currently growing so uh we're doing good it's it's exciting i'm very happy about it i have my little plants i have my little patio and it's all very nice and i think also it was a bit of a gamble just being on like an upper level balcony with like how much can we actually grow we're kind of shaded mm. but we figured it out and it's growing well so i'm very excited for my plants they're doing so good there's something about having a balcony i don't know if you feel this way but i remember in my old place that i lived where i had a balcony it felt like an adult treehouse. It was very exciting. So our balcony. We've been calling it the treehouse, actually. So we're on, <gasps> we're on the third floor, and there's a tree right in front of our balcony. So we're literally, Ooh. like, up there behind a tree. We have a roof on it, too. So it's, like, super closed in. And mm-hmm. then we actually have a bird that's nesting on a pipe right next to it. So we literally have Aww. birds there all the time. We're like up in a tree. We have our plants everywhere. We got some zero gravity loungers so we can lounge appropriately. And uh, it's like, yeah, it's our little tree house where we grow food. And I'm excited. I love that for you. Love Thanks. this journey for you. Thank you. 
You're welcome. Well, thank you guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for coming back. Um, and, you know, hopefully there's good shit happening in your world. We'd love to hear about it. And thank you for getting spooky. Yes, thank you all for getting spooky. Bye. Bye.